asked you where the economy is today, at this moment, what would you say? Is it growing? Flat? Declining? What about your economy, your personal investments, your nest egg? How safe is it and how likely is it to grow at the rate that you want it to? When you think about your current investments, how do you feel? Secure? Or are you panicking a little? For many people, the recession of 2008 still lingers. Those who suffered are waiting, white-knuckled, holding onto their portfolios and still wondering what to do next. We have, after all, been in one of the longest bull markets in history, and bull markets always come to an end at some point. So how do you protect yourself from the possibility of another 2008? And how can you start to take a more proactive, confident approach to your portfolio? When Tony Robbins wrote Money, Master the Game, he had the unique privilege of sitting down with some of the most successful, masterful investors and financial gurus of all time, including the legendary Ray Dalio. Ray founded the investment management firm Bridgewater Associates in 1975 out of his two-bedroom New York City apartment. Four decades later, Bridgewater has grown to be the largest hedge fund in the world, managing over $160 billion and making more money for its investors than any other hedge fund in history. Dalio himself has appeared on the Time 100 list of the most influential people in the world, as well as the Bloomberg Markets list of the 50 most influential people. And in Money Master the Game, Ray explains just what it means to create a balanced portfolio and even revealed the exact percentages of a simple portfolio that will protect you from the dips and even the dives in the market. But now, as Ray nears retirement, he's made the decision to share even more of the systems and strategies that have brought him such massive success in his deeply personal book, Principles, Life and Work. Tony recently sat down with Ray to discuss just why Ray felt so inclined to share his wisdom with the world, and why Principles is an absolute must-read for everyone, whether you're in the financial industry or not. And in this episode of the podcast, you'll hear from Tony and Ray as they discuss the evolution of Ray's career, the catastrophic mistakes he made that almost destroyed everything he built, and how the lowest points in his life taught him his biggest lessons. You'll also hear Tony and Ray discuss their personal beliefs about creating successful and productive workplace culture, and why everyone should strive to create a meritocracy and invoke radical honesty in their lives. So without further ado, Tony Robbins and Ray Dalio. I'm very excited this morning to be able to visit with you and have the privilege to introduce you to a man who is a personal hero for me personally and I think for so many individuals. He's an incredibly humble man who comes from humble roots and yet over four decades he's built his life and his businesses to heights that most people could never even imagine. I'm talking about a man who is considered by many to be one of the greatest investors in history, certainly the most successful hedge fund manager in history. He's returned more money to investors than anyone in the history of investing in that category. $57 billion since 1975, to give you an idea. So not only is he one of the greatest investors, people call him the Da Vinci of investing, he's been called the Steve Jobs of investing. But the reason that Ray is so unique is he's also an unbelievable entrepreneur. Uh, his company Bridgewater that he built starting when he was 26 in a two-bedroom apartment uh, has now been built into an organization that manages $160 billion. Fortune says that it's one of the five most important corporations, private companies in the United States. It shapes a great deal of how our world works. And the man who created it and built it, both the entrepreneur who built Bridgewater and the man who is one of the greatest investors of all time is joining us because today is the launch of his new book. 
It's called Principles, Life and Business by Ray Dalio. The quote on the cover is from Bill Gates, of course. It says, Ray Dalio has provided me with invaluable guidance and insights that are now available to you in principles. This book is part biography, it's part the principles of what has made his life so incredible, and it's part really what you do to grow in business, and when you read about his life, you learn investment principles as well. It is one of the greatest books I've read, and so I wanted to promote it and get you all to get a copy of it, so go get it immediately. Uh, but Ray was kind enough to fly down here. He's doing tons of media in New York. It's the opening day, and he's here to do this Facebook Live with us. So, Ray, thanks for joining us. Oh, man, thank you for having me. That's a privilege. It's really been wonderful to get to know you as a friend and to see the impact of what you do a little bit more on the inside. And you've been very kind and helping me get information to people on how they can change their financial lives. I, you know, I interviewed 50 of the brightest financial people in the world, and when I sat down with you, you became one of my absolute favorites that I think you know, just because you built a machine. You've, you've thought about finance so different than everyone else. But I wanna start, and you've done three principles, which is this book is all about. I'd like to start with the, the beginning, the early days, um, because when someone sees someone as successful as you are in business and in investing, uh, they look at you like you're from another planet. Uh, but you really come from very humble roots. Will you tell us a little bit about your childhood in Long Island, your parents, and, and what got you hooked on investing in the first place? My, my dad was a jazz musician. Yes. Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. Uh, I got hooked on investing because I was a caddy. Yeah. I had odd jobs when I was growing up. You know, I would, had a paper route, cut lawns, and did all yeah. that. And then I got into caddying when I was 12, and yeah. uh, the markets were hot at the time. Yeah. And I thought that, uh, you know, I want to take my catting money and play the markets. And At 12 years old. Well, I mean, of course, it wasn't that big a deal. Like, everybody's talking about the market. Because the market so, was hot. So it, was yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the first stock I bought was the only company I ever heard of that was selling for less than $10, $5 a share. And it was, the only reason I bought it is I figured I could buy more shares. So if it goes up, I would make more money. Right. That was a dumb <laughs> strategy. Right, logic, right, <laughs> right, okay. And I tripled my money because oh my it, was, it was not smart. It was dumb. But I got lucky because it, w it got acquired by somebody who, some company yeah. that was then took it over and it was about to go bankrupt. And then I got hooked. Yeah. Right. And I loved the game. And of course. You tripled your money. You're, and, and you were making, what, $5 a bag in those days? Yeah, $6 a bag. $6 a bag. Right. And so every time I'd get $50, I would then go to buy another share of stock or something. Wow. You know, a few shares of stock. And that was what it was like. And I got hooked. Yeah. Right? Did you ever want to be anything other than somebody in the financial market? So, you know, an investor, an owner? Or... Well, it was always my favorite game. Yes. Right? I mean, I, I, the, I could have been a lot of other things. Yes. I mean, I, I, you know, I could have been an architect or whatever. I don't know. But yeah. the market's always, once you get hooked, Possessed you here. get hooked. <laughs> Tell me, why this book now? I mean, you're giving the secrets, basically, of what built Bridgewater, a lot of the principles of how you've grown that company from the one of the top five most successful companies in the United States, private companies. Why now? Why are you sharing this now? And why the level of depth that you're giving here? Well, first, I'm doing it to help other people be successful. Um, I didn't originally want to even be public about this. No, you're things. a very private man. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. Well, what happened in 2011, um, because we made a lot of money in the financial crisis, we got a lot of attention. Yeah. And we have a very unusual way of operating, and that makes us successful. Yes. And it got attention, and so that led me to put these principles that we we're operating by on the, uh, on out. Yes. And uh, 
three million people, three and a half million people downloaded them, and I got a lot of thank you notes and so on. Yes. And now I'm at a stage in my life where I'm moving from the second stage of my life to the third stage of my life. Yes. I believe basically, I think of it as we're operating in three stages. In the first stage, you're dependent on others yep. and you're working. In the second stage of your life, others are dependent on you and your work, and you know, you're working. Um, then you're trying to be successful. Yes. As you move into this third stage, the greatest thing that you could do, and you know it so well, yes. is to help others to be successful. Yes. So my joy is not to be successful anymore. Yeah. It is to help others be successful. And this is my year of transition, 2017, wow. is that year of transition. So I wanted to take that compendium and pass it along. These are recipes that I've learned over a period of time. Yes. Every time I encountered something, um, and I thought, how would I make a decision? I took the time to write down the criteria that I would use to make that decision. Yes. So they became written principles. And then I found that everything changed when I wrote them down. Because other people then could look at them and we could say, what are our principles? Yes. And we could be clear on what we could be with each other. And guide and, all decisions from it. And all decisions. And then eventually I learned that I could take some of these decisions, all our investment decisions, and a lot of the people decisions, and put them into algorithms. Yes. And have the computers make decisions with me. So it changed everything when I wrote them down. So the, this is basically, think of it almost as a recipe book. Yes. Right? Yes. And for if you encounter this thing, here's the principles I wrote for dealing with that thing. Yes. And then those have been vetted, and the, I just figure those people, anybody who reads it, can decide for themselves. Does that make sense or not make sense? Because I don't want people to follow my principles. I want people to know whatever their principles are, yes. to come up with theirs. Yes. So I'm just trying to pass them along. And, and like I'll be asking you later, what are your principles? Yes. And let's just get the best principles there that help us. So it, I felt that it was my obligation to do that at this phase of my life. It's beautiful. Well, it's also by doing it, you leverage yourself. You can have the impact without being there because you're empowering people to know how to make the best decision possible. I always say success is the result of good judgment. You have good judgment, make the right decisions, you're going to succeed. Good judgment is the result often of experience and experience is often a result of bad judgment, <laughs> as you've learned. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think the two things you need to be do to be successful. Yes. You have to come up with the best decisions and yes. you have to have the courage to make them. Yes. And I think the real problem about most people with the best decisions is that they think it's in their heads. Yeah. And most people, tragically, are attached to opinions in their heads and they don't put them out and stress test them. So the thing that I learned was really to take those ideas, put them out there in a certain way, and stress test them. Whatever success I've had in life has had more to my knowing how to deal with my not knowing yes. than anything I know. and that taught me a lot more, and it taught me how to take in what others have, and that was, you know, a key thing. So this is really about how to do that. Well, you know, let's talk about how that came about for you, because I think, you know, when, you, when I went around and interviewed people, when you've watched somebody on CNBC, everybody knows the market's going, and they're going to tell you with absolute certainty, right? And then when I interviewed the best investors on earth, you obviously being one of the top, there's this not only humility, it's not like a false humility, it's like, I don't know if I'm right and I have to prepare. I have to have an asset allocation that if I'm wrong, I'm still gonna do well. It's a different mindset. But tell me, 
it really came from failure that you looked at this because you were somewhat, you know, proud and maybe your own description was arrogant at one point. Let's let's go back early on. You know, early days you got into the commodities business and I know you were trading your own accounts and you had some experiences with pork bellies that got your attention. And then you told me when we first met about when we went off the gold standard and how wrong you were. Tell me about those two situations and how did they inform or change your mindset to say, no matter how certain I am, I'm gonna stress this test with people that are smart but have a different point of view than I do. Well, you know, in the markets, in order to beat the markets, you have to have an independent point of view and that's different from the consensus because the consensus is built into the price and you've got to be right and you're going to be wrong a fair amount of it. And therefore, I learned just what you said, the power of mistakes, yes. the power of learning of mistakes. And so there's the pork belly example, of course, that was one of those that I wrote about in the book. Yeah. Uh, and then there was the uh, gold standard and I, walk, I was clerking on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, 1971. The US, the world doesn't take our money anymore. And President Nixon gets on the television and he says that the link to gold is broken. And what that meant at the time is that money, as we thought about it, was just like checks in a checkbook. Yes. And what mattered was the money that was in the bank. The gold. And that was the gold. Yeah. And the, all of a sudden that stopped. And I thought that the stock market... So basically the, the money is attached to nothing. It's what it is today and everybody's gotten used to. But then it's all of a sudden it's worth nothing. I used to turn it in and get gold and I turn it in and get zero. Right. And I walked on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and um, I thought assume? the stock market was going to go down. Yeah. And it went up. Okay. And, uh, and, and what I realized then, that uh, when I went back and I studied history, that although it never happened in my lifetime before, it happened before. And so the greatest surprises that I learned about are things that never happened in our lifetimes before, Yes. but they happened before. Everything has happened before. Yes. Everything is repeated. Cycle. So the, but the one that had the biggest effect on me was 1982. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Okay, 1982. Okay, I had calculated that American banks um, had lent a lot of money to a bunch of countries that would not be able to pay back. Latin American and emerging countries that couldn't pay back. And it was a sort of a crazy point of view. But uh, Mexico defaulted. You're um, right about that part. Uh, right about that part, but yes. you're not right if you're not making money in the market. Okay, so they default August, 19, uh, um, August 1982. And I thought the stock market's going to go down, and the stock market went up because the Federal Reserve eased, things changed, and whatever, and I learned, okay? Yes. So I was... Um, I, but I, but it wasn't, was, you didn't just miss. You were, like, publicly humiliated. You, what happened to your company at the time? You, were, you, were, you lost all your... Tell, tell us what I happened. had to lose... I, I lost all the people who worked for me. I had to let... They were like family to you. They were like family, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then I and, and you I had to borrow four thousand dollars. You, you know the story. Oh, well, 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 tell right. us. I'm interrupting. I don't mean to. I just no, 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 no. But, but 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 it, right. You, it, it's in the book. So I lost all these people I cared about. Uh, I was very publicly wrong. And how many uh, employees were left when you were done? Me. <laughs> oh so I had to make a choice. Am I going to put on a tie and go to World, Wall Street and do have a job or not? And I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad to help pay for my family bills. Wow. And that was one of the most painful experiences that I ever had. And it's after you've been in business, what, eight years, seven this years? This is right. Yeah. Wow. And, and it quite was a name for yourself of, already. And it was one of the best experiences I ever had. Why? And it was one of the best experiences because it changed my attitude about decision making. I learned, okay? I went from thinking I'm right to asking myself, how do I know I'm right? 
right? Yes. And, it, and, and that gave me an open-mindedness. And I've learned, by the way, when I know a lot of very successful people, and I learned that um, they crashed at some point. Almost everybody's crashed. They, um, Joseph Campbell in his book uh, calls it hitting the, going into the abyss. Yeah. And, as they, and that crashing is really the best thing for them yes. because they either have a metamorphosis or they don't. Yeah. And I learned uh, pain plus reflection equals progress, progress. Yes. right? Yes. In other words, that, those moments and then quality reflection. So I learned that I needed to have an idea meritocracy. In other words... Explain that. Oh, okay. An idea meritocracy is when uh, the best ideas win out. So it's no. not autocracy. It's not I'm in charge and I'm making the decisions. Right. And it's not democracy. Everybody's equal. It's the people with the best ideas are the ones that are the ones that influence where you go. Right. Well, to use an example, think about it this way. Supposing you have some, uh, a sickness and you go to a doctor. Okay. You can go to one doctor. You can go to three doctors. If you can triangulate among believable people and then you're faced with the choice, how are you going to deal with that situation? So, for example, um, you might say, I think I should do this decision. Well, you'd be dumb if the doctors tell you to do the other decision, yeah. even though you don't understand it. If those people who are independent thinkers are willing to argue with each other and they triangulate and they think you should do something, you probably should do it. Right. But if they're at odds, you get to hear the disagreements. Why is it? It's the yes. quickest way to get an education. Yes. So you raise your probabilities of being right. So I learned that it, this, one of the smartest things I could do was find the smartest people who disagreed with me and triangulate. And so when we came to the financial crisis in yes. 2008, it was because we had this view that was very different from the rest of the world That's about the financial successful. crisis. Yes. But to have that independent thinking and to do that triangulation. So it's humility. In other words, the humility, the fear of being wrong. I have a saying, if, if you don't worry, you need to worry. And if, you, and if you worry, you don't need to worry, right? You don't need to, if you, if you don't worry, you're probably going to get into yeah. trouble. Yes. And if you worry, you'll probably do make the things the, that are necessary. That, so exactly. Yes, and so that change in mindset and being able to draw the best out of everybody so I can make the best decisions not being attached to what I think. Yes. That's why I say I think it's one of the greatest tragedies of mankind, one of the greatest tragedies of mankind, because it so easily could be rectified if people can separate their attachments for what they have in their head and put them out and stress test them probably, properly, they will raise their probabilities of being right. This, yes. is, the, this is key, has been key for me. I think, you know, for those people watching, there's so many business owners out there, small and medium, big, big businesses. If you're watching, and I always talk about the fact that owners tend to put themselves in a position where they try to make 12 decisions. And I always say, get 12 of your best people and make one decision because the crowd decision is always going to be better. But why don't people do that? Why do we have this push that we all think that we have to be the source? We have to have the answer and we have to be, you know, never fail when it's just not realistic. What do you think that is in the human psyche? Well, and how have you, uh, how, how have you balanced I, it? I, I, I've, stu I I've, stu I've studied why this is. I've asked neuroscientists, I've asked psychologists yes. why it is. And they say that there's two reasons for it. Partially it's neuroscience yes. and partially it's uh, environment and habit. Yeah. And it can be broken. So uh, the neuroscience part of it is that deep-seated in our brains is a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is the fight or flight part of the yeah. brain. Survival. And there's a little bit of an instinct that if there's disagreement, that that is conflict and it produces an emotional reaction. There's a tendency to do that. The other part of it 
is the world rewards being right. In other words, you start with the smart kid who gets the A's on his test and so on. And then they, and then they um, don't get, go through their failure. You know that the best learning comes from failure, right? But if people become embarrassed about not knowing. We're in a society that operates that way. Yeah. And if you can actually teach how great failure can be as a learning thing, yeah. it's so terrific. So it's a combination of habit and, and instincts. But I've learned that in 18 months, people can be totally different. It, the, we call it the getting to the other side. They go through this, of course, experience of everybody speaking frankly with each other and figuring out in an idea meritocratic way what's true, including what your weaknesses are. Do you want to know your weaknesses? Is it good? Yes. When you go through that and people want to so that they know how to compensate for those weaknesses, yes. then they can move beyond that. And so what we found in a period of 18 months of doing that exercise, most people can get to the other side. Then they don't want to operate the old way. Right. Because, first of all, they don't want people not to be straight with them. Yeah. You know, like, if, if do you want me, do you want to know what I really yeah, think Yeah, I don't want you? to talk about do my you back. Want to know? <laughs> yes. So you ask people, they yeah. do. Their intellectual part of them does. Their emotional part needs to have a little bit of adjusting to that. Yeah. And so we go through that process. And, that, and, that, and it changes everything because great collective decision making with the smartest people are willing to disagree is going to make you most likely to be right. Yeah. You're learning right now the most fundamental important distinction that has guided this man's life after going so, so much failure to have so much success. And every business person, any human being that wants to make better decisions needs to apply this. I hope you'll take it in. It's kind of like when people succeed, they party. When they fail, they ponder. And there's no, there's no transformation out of partying. There's some, there's some enjoyment. I think, but the pondering really can make the shift. I think, I think in order to be successful, you have to do five things. Great. There's a sequence, okay? Great. First, you have to have your goals. I mean, you talk about audacious goals. Aud well, I think have audacious goals. Yes. Why? Right? I agree, but because why? Because you want to have the greatest life you can possibly yes. have and the greatest impact you can have. And your goals affect right? you, whatever they are. If they're small goals, you're affected in a small way. If they're really driven, you're, you rise to the occasion. Right. Goals. Next, problems. On your way to your goals, you're going to encounter your problems yes. or your failures. Yes. Right? But you don't okay. tolerate them. Don't, you got it. Don't tolerate them. Yes. Right? Number three is then diagnose them to get at their root causes. Yeah. And often those root causes are things that people are doing wrong. Maybe you're doing wrong. Maybe it's a weakness of you. Yes. Notice the patterns. Get at the root causes. Yes. Once you know the root causes to your problems, then you go to find out a, diagno a, a, a design. Yeah. So you've diagnosed it to its root cause. Find out the design of what you're going to do about that. So let's say you have a weakness. You might not, maybe it's develop the strength, or maybe it is to work somebody who's with somebody who's strong where you're weak. So you don't always have to be able to overcome every weakness. Sometimes it's finding the right partner. It's usually the most practical thing, right? That makes sense. Because everybody's brain works in different ways. Yes. In other words, to see something one way, you're probably going to be blind in another way. Yeah. So to know how to work with people who are strong where you're weak yeah. is very powerful. So number three, design what you're going to do. Yeah. And number four, number four and number five is to push through to results right? right so you say i've got a design okay now goddamn do that design yeah. right the determination and flexibility to find the way and that's it this is what i call this looping go for your goals identify and not tolerate your problems get to the root cause of them then design a path to fix those Solution, things yeah. and then go beyond it to push through 
And you just keep, life is just basically keep doing that over and over again. Yes. And if you do that, you'll, you'll make the advances. That is why failure, failure is a teacher. You know, if you have success, you did it right. So there's nothing to learn probably, <laughs> yeah. right? If you, if you have failure, there's something to learn, right? Yes. Make the most of your failures. What, what I learned, I, I, I developed an instinctual reaction that's different uh, uh, from failure. It used, uh, uh, what, the instinct is now to view failure as a puzzle that yes. will give me gems. The puzzle. Solve the puzzle. Right. The puzzle is, what would I do differently in the future so not to have that result? And that's where the principles come from. That's what, you write that down. Yeah. So and you can guide those decisions in the future and really make it happen. After every event I've done, Ray, in 40 years, my team will tell you there's no exaggeration, at, not after every event, after every break at every event, which is usually pretty late at night, I think you know, I, I, I do a debrief of everything that worked so I can capture it and why, the principle behind it, and then I do a debrief of what didn't work or could have been better and what should we do to change it and improve it. And I've done that for 40 years, to give you an idea. So there's a reason why events get better and better because it's nothing but principles. And then my team reviews it before the next event. We review what works so we can do it again even better and then we see what didn't and figure out what the solution is. And it's just, it the, the learning never stops, right? Well, this is why we, something you and I want to pass along to be yes. of help, right? Yes, for the sure. The value of mistakes. Yes. And they sting, so they stick. Yes, you remember them. Right. <laughs> yes. Like, I think of my life, and I remember back, and I remember all my failures. I don't remember my successes. Yes. And so, I would, like, to me, I would think it was a life of failure. Well, I'll remind you. <laughs> You've had <laughs> a lot of success. But because of that, yes. it's all evolution. Yes. It's all evolution. Yes. And it's beautiful. But you, you can't worry about getting your knees skinned, you know? What have been some of your weaknesses? And, and you know, maybe share with me. I know in 1993 you wrote about in the book, and we've talked about it. You received a memo. You built this culture where everybody's transparent, where there's this total radical honesty and truth. Not meanness, just honesty. But not everybody was ready for that, and they were interpreting it in a certain way. So tell me about that memo and how it changed you. But also tell me what... What has been one of your weaknesses and how have you either made it into a strength or how have you surrounded yourself with better people to overcome it? Okay, so let me take the 93 first and yeah, then I'll go to my weaknesses. Um, so 1993, I then had about 70 people work for me. Yeah. And, uh, and how many do you have now? 1,800, 1,500? 1,500, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and I get a review. I want to be reviewed by other people and I get a review by some of them the closest, and they said, you did these things great. But you're demoralizing people. You're, they're feeling, uh, you know, bad about all of these things. They're yes. demoralized. Yes. Uh, and I said to myself, I didn't want to demoralize them. We're yeah. in it together. I didn't know if, they, they didn't tell me, but fortunately came through this way. And I was put into a dilemma. How do I f handle this? Do I be straightforward with the people? And because I want them to be straightforward to yes. me and be straightforward, but it was difficult and it was a problem. And that was a very important time yes. because it, the way that I dealt with it uh, was to think, how are we going to behave with each other? So I sat down with them individually and I said, do you want me to be straightforward? Do you want to know what I really think? Do you want me to listen to what you really think? Should we be this way together? And that began a process, really, of writing down principles of dealing with different things, putting them in writing, yes. and then saying, can we agree that this is how we're going to be with each other? Yes. And it's based and, on fairness and truth. That's right. Yes. But, it's, but a lot of people could say, 
that's discomforting. Most of the world doesn't do this, right? Yeah, why is it when they write about you, you know, everybody honors you, obviously, but you always, once in a while, get those pieces, like they talk about your group like it's a cult. <laughs> it's like, it's not a cult. It's the silliest thing I've ever heard. It's an unbelievable standard. It's like a group of Navy SEALs because the standard is so well, high. What are they the missing opposite. about your culture? I know, what is it they missing? I, I think that some people, you know, get bruised by this, yes. by, by that straightforwardness. Is and, there a percentage it, of the population a, that just can't handle it in terms of the, their psychological yeah, makeup? that's right. There's yeah. about, well, we find in about the first 18 months, two years, about a third of the population doesn't make it. Yeah, Right. that makes sense. It's not for them. And it's totally fine. Yes. Okay. Um, but but this isn't it, you know what it happens? It, it, it basically is a battle that they have between their two U's, we call right. it, okay? There are two U's Freud's in your view, brain, yeah. okay? There's the upper level U that is logical, rational, and say, what I like to know what's true, what I like to know my weaknesses, what I like to, Cerebral cortex. Yeah, okay, the prefrontal cortex. Yeah. And then the other parts of our brain, the subliminal uh, amygdala and so on, that doesn't like that. Yeah. And so usually they go through this process they think the process is fair. We do extraordinary things to make it fair, but they are really having a battle of their two use. Yes, I guess. So it. that's what's going on to a large extent. Yes. And so it it's a difficult environment. It's like you say, it's like an intellectual Navy SEALs, right? Yeah. If you get to the other side and you get through it and you have these relationships, these relationships are very important, then it's powerful. I, I, I want to describe it maybe in one long sentence, oh, okay? Right. Um, it is an idea meritocracy in which the goals are to have meaningful work and meaningful relationships. Yes. And they're equally important, by the yes. way, and they reinforce each other. So an idea meritocracy to have meaningful work and meaningful relationships through radical truthfulness and radical transparency. Yes. Radical truthfulness means we lay on the table what we really think and we deal with it. Yeah. And radical transparency means gives the ability of the people to see everything. Because you can't have spin. If you, I can see everything, if you can see everything, you can be part of the idea of meritocracy, of course. Yes. If you hear somebody tell you what's happening and everybody's giving you the different stories, you can't be. So being radically truthful and radically transparent. And just to clarify, people, it doesn't mean your hair looks ugly today, it's, it's not, you're looking fat. It's, right. not, it's not that kind of thing. It's about the truth of what we're trying to get to and understanding where markets are going, how the business is functioning. How, it's calling it tight. Right, how we should be with each other. Yes. Whether we're strong or weak in different ways. Yes. Okay, yes. that kind of thing. Yes. So that, that, that radical truthfulness and radical transparency is key. Essentially... Would you be where you are today without it? No! That's, that's what I want everyone to hear. Nowhere near, yeah. right? Because, yeah. you, you, you know, I think you've got to do three things. First, you have to put your honest thoughts on the table for everybody to look at. Yes. Everybody. Yes. And you look at them, and they're different. Then you have to know the art of thoughtful disagreement. In other words, Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. How do you work through to get a better answer than you would have individually? Yes. Okay? Yes. Thoughtful disagreement. To like it, to respect the other person, and not but to know get... that it's going to lead to something greater for everyone. Of course. Yeah, higher mission, okay. higher purpose. And then, th and then third is if the dif dif disagreements remain, you have to have protocols for getting past that. In our case, we have what we call believability-weighted decision-making. In other words, we have not an 
autocracy and not a democracy, yeah. but but idea meritocracy in which there's ways where who's got the best track record in those areas track record and, and everybody and and who thinks is the best decision making in, in that category in that category got it. exactly got it. and so if you have an idea meritocracy where the best ideas win out. It's going to be so much better than if you're stuck with the ideas in your head, right? Yeah, without a doubt. And it's, and why, it's and personal development. Yes. It's, how can you grow if you can't be honest, right? How can you grow so, if you can't be truthful? The truth and, sets us free. And the relationships. You know, the thing that has been best for me, I'm, now I'm at a stage in my life where I look back. Yes. And I reflect. Yes. And, I'm, and I think, wow, it's been great in so many ways. But the best were the relationships. Hmm. It wasn't the money, yeah. okay? Yeah. I mean, that was great. Sure. All these other things, you know, I yeah. track record, we did good things to clients, all that. Yeah. Great. But it, it was still the relationships. And those honest relationships yes. are deeper and better. Yes. It's tough love. It's, t it's the benefit of tough love. Tough love is the best love. Yes. When right? it's given from the heart still. That's the secret. It, it, it's coming that, from a place of truly caring. Because, not just exactly. Crying. Because, well, you do it all the time, right? You help people be, it's caring. And yes. when people know that it's caring, together with the truth, the tough truths, yeah. yes. and you can go through it together, that's powerful. It is. Tell me, what's, what's been one of the weaknesses that you had to deal with early on? And how did you deal with it? Did you find a way to grow through it? Did you find people around you who had better skill sets? What, what would it be? Um, well, early on, I have a terrible rope memory. Like, I, I mean, I can't remember anything that doesn't have a reason for being what it is. Wow. So, I mean, like, I was a bad student. Um, I, I, I hated you had the highest, I thought you had the highest grades in your class at Harvard. No, no, oh, no, I no. Well, uh, no. I, at, at Harvard Business School, I loved Harvard Business School. Oh, that's the difference. It was so you loved it, you did kind, well. <laughs> it was a different kind of education. Oh, interesting. Because it wasn't a memory. It had right. nothing to do with memory. So for most of my early years, I hated school. Got it. I didn't, I, you know, I, I have a bad rote memory. Um, I, you know, I tend to be uh, details are, are a mess for me. Right. You know, anybody who's around me, I need to work with people who are meticulous, yes. you know, and, and, yes. and detail-oriented. Yes. Um, uh, you know, we... So it supplements so, you. So, yeah. Um, I mean, so... You know, and then I would say that certainly my audaciousness uh, had an arrogance to it, but that before I got the sh kicked out of me, in order, <laughs> you know, enough times to learn fear. Sometimes it takes multiple times to get the shit kicked out right. of you before you learn, right? Learn, yeah. learn fear. Yeah. Yeah. You know, those were the things. Yes. And but then I start to learn, you know, it doesn't matter. Weaknesses don't matter really. Yeah, give us a metaphor. When we first met. You share with me your philosophy of like looking at life as the jungle and how that kind of shifted the way you even built uh, your company. Tell me a little bit about the jungle metaphor. Yeah, so in 1982 you. when I crashed and I th had to think, okay, would I go get a job and work in that yeah. or would I continue on with the audacious goals? Yes. Um, I realized it seemed to me like it was being on one side of a jungle and I could stay on the safe side of the jungle and, but not have a terrific life. Right. And in order to have a terrific life, I had to go through this dangerous jungle yes. and, in order to have a great life. And I think, okay, what would I do? Now, for me, I, I need to go after the great life. I mean, I, I just yeah, need to do to. it. You can't settle. So, and I think, well, how would I go into that dangerous jungle with all of these different things? And what I realized 
is that if I go into it with people who also are with me on it, yes. who see differently, yes. who can see what I can't see, and we each can bring our own, that we together can go through that dangerous jungle to get the other side to have a great life. Yes. So that's what it's like. And, and it wasn't it, just people that agreed with you, it was people that disagreed no, with you. No, of course. Yeah, I just that's want to make sure everybody I understands need. that. Yes. That's, see differently. Yes, it's not see just somebody disagrees with you, though. It's somebody who's qualified to disagree with you. Sometimes one of your right. principles is, you know, when to not say anything, when to shut up. When, yeah. do, you, when do you keep your opinion to yourself? Uh, explain that. If you really recruit the best of the best, but you're not looking for everybody's going to attaboy you. You're looking for people who have a radically different point of view, and out of that, you're pulling this. Maybe explain the, what's it called, the dot, what do you call the... the dot piece? collector. The dot collector. Maybe explain to people how that functionally happens. Because people can criticize you and the government. You have a 24-year-old who has no, no background and say, Ray, I think you're doing a crap job on this. Um, and someone else might say you're doing a great job. How do you measure and decide who to listen to? How do you make that meritocracy work? Okay. I, I want to say that for anybody who wants to see it, there's a TED Talk. I'm going I'm to put it out in 16 two minutes. Gonna, and, yes. and you'll see how the dot collector works. Perfect. Right? But what it is, is um, as the meetings are going on, people are very easily it, dotting, they call dotting. Yes. So they're, seeing, they're conveying what they're seeing and how each person is behaving about different things. Um, so and you might be speaking and they might say what? Some people might think that's the most arrogant thing or the stupidest thing, or you're not being considerate to that person, or there's like one of 50 different things. You can, hit, you, you can go dot, 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 okay. Ray, boom, that, um, okay. you know, bad, good, boom. Yes. And we all do it together, right? So that creates all of a sudden the visualization of how everybody's seeing everything. So that comes up on a screen and you're seeing in colors how people are seeing each other and, and, wow. and the colors. Wow. So what happens from that, uh, which is unbelievable, is that you ask yourself, how do I know that I'm seeing it the right way? Because yeah, this young lady might be saying, this is stupid, and there's four other people saying, this is genius, and you're seeing all that in real time? In real time. Wow. So because when you're seeing it in real time, you're forced to say, how do I know that I'm not the wrong one? Or why am I seeing it that way that is different from that? And so what happens is the computer is analyzing simultaneously who is seeing what what way, and uh, it causes people to go above themselves, right? Mm. In other words... It really it, provides perspective. Yeah, yeah, because you're just one of those in that line yeah. and in this grid. And now you go above yourself and you're saying, this is how everybody's seeing. Then it raises the question of, together, how do we know what's best, right. okay? Just because it's in your head doesn't yeah. mean it's best. So how do we know what's best? And that brings us back to we and the, the, the ability of the team to make the decision as opposed to me thinking I have the answer completely. Right. So the ability of this computers then programmed in a way where it knows about all of those, what they're good at, what they're yeah. bad at, yeah. and so on, puts it in place and, and actually communicates individually wow. with each person. So your iPad is coming back and saying, Tony... Be aware of this, this, and the other thing as you're making that decision. And so it supplements the decision-making, and it communicates to you personally, knowing what you're like, knowing what the other people you're interacting like, and it drives us to the higher level. Then we say to ourselves, what are the criteria for determining the best decision given that? Mm -hmm. So it's a collective... The, the, the team creates the principles. Then. Right, and then the team creates the principles, and then you write the algorithms. Okay, right. 
And that algorithm, which is just the same as a principle, but just yeah. in computer language. Just designed to trigger you at the right time. Right. It comes and it communicates with you and, and it says, okay, now how do we make a believability weighted decision based on the strengths and weaknesses? So that if, you know, let's say, four uh, believable people at one level outvote one who might even have a higher believability at another, what is our way of doing that? Yeah. And because everybody believes that that's an idea meritocratic way, most yes. everybody believe that, yes. because we can do that collectively, that's why we create an idea meritocracy. I don't want it to sound complicated. We, it's just because it's evolved in these ways. Yeah, over time. Um, the important thing for anybody out there, they may not have the algorithm, yeah, okay? They won't have a lot of things, although I would like to put this out for everybody to have. That's beautiful. Um, but what I, I think the important thing is just the understanding, just the wanting of idea meritocratic decision making. Yeah. Just the writing down of what are the principles yes. when we get into that situation. How will we deal with that situation and we agree on those principles? Yes. And then you build on that. Anybody can do that. Yeah. It's all about making the right decision, ultimately. It's all about the making. That's all it really is. All this is that we have the right decision, and you've been able to make the right, right decisions more than anybody else in your category. And not You're twice. I just want people to know, you know, wealthy people take their money and put it in a hedge fund. And a large hedge fund might be $20 billion. You're $160 billion. You're twice, you're bigger than your two biggest competitors combined. So he's actually showing you how they make these decisions. What do you do on Monday? But it's not me. Well, your team, excuse me. That's I'm exactly saying right. it's that's, that's this. The beauty. I get it. Right? I get it. The power it's of it. this. Yeah, it's the power of the crowd. Because if, if you're stuck with all you've got in your head, that's very little yeah. in relationship to all that's out there. And that's what makes you a business owner anyway, as opposed to an operator is when you can be in a position where the team is making those decisions, not just you. Otherwise, you well, carry and, it all on your back. But even if you're just the one one guy yes. and you have the one business, you, have the you still outside. have all those people yeah. around you. Exactly right. right. It's all about skewing the probability of being right, right? It's yeah. awesome. Tell me, what in 2008, you saw what was coming. You tried to warn people. Very few people listened to you. What did you see that no one else saw? that you know, let you know what's going on so you could do well even during that time and protect? Well, we went through the calc, it's really pretty simple. At individual and uh, levels, we went down, how much is that going to have to be paid back in debt? What are the calculations? Who lends the money? And we could see that we were gonna have a, uh, you know, a debt crisis. But- yeah. Why um, did anybody else see that? But I, 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 I wanna make it, uh, I did a 30 minute video on how the economic yes, machine we want people works. To see that. And, I'm, and, and I'd say, if they look at that, almost everything I know that's worthwhile in economics is in that 30-minute video. Yes. And so you can understand, how do you see a bubble? How do yeah. you, what, what are they like? Bubbles and busts and, and so on. Where are we today in our economic that, That's my question. Where are we today in our economic cycle? Well, and, and that's, as, as, as you know, there's productivity uh, is one, productivity. When we learn, we do things better and we advance our living standards by learning. And that happens at a certain pace. Yes. Um, and that's the line. And then around that line, there are two big cycles. There's a short-term debt cycle, which we call a business cycle, right? Yes. You go from a recession to an overheating the economy and so on. It's over five to eight years usually. Yeah, so, and, and it'll stretch. We are, in, in, putting the side away, we're at that part of the cycle we're in, in, the, in the beginning of the late part of the cycle. We're um, no longer do we have the slack, but we're not having tightness. 
Right. So we're in the, that part of the cycle, which is the Goldilocks part of the cycle, where things are not too hot and not too cold. Yes. And so as a result, we don't have too much inflation. We don't have too much growth. Everything is kind of tepid. That's yes. the part of the cycle we're at. Yeah. So as a result, the Federal Reserve, which pushed a lot of money into the system, will stop pushing those money into the system. As a result of pushing interest rates down, they're going to stop pushing those interest rates down. And now we're in that transition period. Okay, That's the short-term debt cycle. And it's probably not going to produce much volatility. It's going to create that kind of, and, and almost everything is sort of like at equilibrium. There's short-term interest rates where they are and so on. In addition, though, in the long-term debt cycle, we are late in the long-term debt cycle. The amount you've got to watch this video because you'll understand this more thoroughly. It's on YouTube. What's the title again? It's how the economic how machine, machine works. works. Right. But please continue. I just okay. want to make sure they know to look. Yeah. Up. Over the period of time, we have accumulated lots of debts, and then some obligations that are not necessarily called hard debts, right. pension obligations, yes. Yes. a lot so of pension Medicare, obligations, Medicaid, and then Medicaid and you know healthcare. And the demographics are changing, and all of those obligations cannot be met. And they're like a lot of debt. And they're, they're, they're squeezing us. They're going to squeeze us. Okay, so that we're in that middle part of the cycle with that squeezing gradually coming. We don't have a bubble, that, so we don't have to worry about that. We're going to so have a gradual worried, you're squeeze. You're not worried about another 2008. Here's the question no, I had. You know, you, here's what I'm worried yeah, about. Tell me. What are you worried? We're, we're going uh, to have a squeeze, a slow squeeze. And the biggest thing to understand is that uh, we don't have one economy. Think of it as having two economies, okay? okay? Think of it, in, to make it this way, there's the, let's call it the bottom 60% and the top 40%, yes. okay? Because don't, we make a mistake of thinking about the economy or the average economy, and you don't realize how different those are. And that's the biggest issue of our time. So very much like the late 30s, Okay. Same things, by the way, happened in 19, all of the 30s, up to 1937. To this year is now. very similar to 1937. In what ways? It, 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 um, back then, they had a debt crisis, 29 to 32, that was the same as our 2008 debt yeah. crisis. Mm -hmm. Both cases, interest rates hit zero. In both cases, the central banks printed a lot of money, bought a lot of financial assets, pushed the economy and the market higher. And, and, and up to 1937, up until now. And then there was a giant wealth gap. Um, so today, the top one-tenth of one percent of the population's wealth is equal to the bottom 90 percent combined. Mind-boggling. One-tenth of one percent equals bottom 90 percent. You have to go back to 1935 to 1940. And also as a result of that, you have populism. You have populism yes. because one segment the economy's not working for. Yeah. Okay, and 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 there's an odds, and we saw it reflected in our election, yes. and we're seeing populism around the world take place. Yes. Very similar. And in 1937, we were at the exact same point in the cycle, and the Federal Reserve decided to tighten monetary policy, and as a result, we had a 50% fall in the stock market. We had a lot of problems. We don't have to enact that. There are lessons to be learned from that period of time. I think the Fed is talking about a soft pay. landing. So it's uh, in other words, we don't sure. want to. You can't have an economic downturn, right? Even though this is times are supposedly great for the average. The stock price is at new highs. We have a situation in where the unemployment rate is low. 
If you look at the circumstances of that bottom 60%, the economy has not worked. They haven't had growth. That's right. Their death rates are rising in, at, at, um, at only places in the world. They're rising because opiates and because of um, suicides. Yeah. Um, the employment, the, uh, the, that middle part of the economy is had a hollowing out, is having a hollowing out. So if you just said, what does that economy, let's carve it out and look at that economy and that's the economy that we have, that is a miserable economy. Yeah. Okay, that's a miserable economy. Yeah. So the fact that we have these two economies, think of it as two economies operating at the, the same time. What are the time. economics of the bottom 60% versus the upper 40 or which, how are you dividing it up? What's the economic barrier there? What's the uh, uh, number, I guess? Who, wh what are you saying an, an income stream is that for a person? Who's in that bottom 60% or 40%? How are you chunking it? It's 50 some odd thousand or, or below. Yeah. Okay, got it. Um, uh, uh, um, but if you, if you, you can't have that conflict. Yeah. So if we look at averages, we're in a, in a bind, right? Yeah. So the central bank. So these are the economic issues. I think the most important is how we deal with conflict. Okay, conflict of the haves and have-nots, conflict of um, the left and the right, conflict and, and, of and, and, social and, and things. How do we do that? You invite conflict, but you, uh, you teach people how to do it intelligently, respectfully, and you figure out how to resolve it. How do we do that as a society when you, know, you have people that go into Congress now, and it used to be they'd fight like crazy 20 years ago, and then they go have a beer together. Now if they speak to each other, they're radioactive. This is the, what, what do we do right. to shift this? So I think the most important thing, the President of the United States and other people, uh, we should think, uh, what are the principles that bind us together? As a society. Right. What are our overarching principles? Are As those Americans. that bind us together greater than those that divide us? What are they? Can we have thoughtful disagreement and have protocols for getting past those disagreements for the country as a whole? This is a time we're going to be tested, okay? Yes. Because if you look at the statistics on polarity, in any measure of polarity, we're having greater polarity almost to the point where the sides want to kill each other. They, they don't want to find the compromise. Our system was based on a system of compromise. Yes. In other words, when they're at odds, we're going to come to compromise. Now we have a dangerous situation in terms of that. So I would say, you know, go to principled level thinking, do the three things that I'm sort of describing, you know, put the honest thoughts on there, have, know the art of thoughtful disagreement, and have protocols for getting past that disagreement and being comfortable with getting past it and then rowing in the same direction yeah. because we did that together. This yeah. is a, you know, be principled. Yeah. Be principled. Sometimes people forget what it means to be principled. I don't think most people really are clear in their principles. I mean, if there's anything that I hope will come out of this conversation and reading your book is that people sit down and figure out what's most important to them, the values, and then what are the principles that are going to guide their decision-making? Because otherwise, it's all about whatever you feel in the moment, whoever pisses you off or whatever you're fearful about. And then you're a reaction. And, you know, leaders anticipate losers react, right? You know, it's like the capacity to do this. So... If we look around right now, one of the biggest concerns that I have is you look around and you see the changes of technology that can make our economy explode. You've got nanotechnology, you've got CRISPR, you've got, you've got tools that are coming along that are going to change the way we function. It's going to change our health, our vitality, everything. But at the same time, you're going to disrupt so many jobs. So, you know, 200 years ago, 85% of the population was a farmer. 
You know, but we had almost a century and a half to shift to where we are today. And now we have 4% farmers and we feed the world. Today, you know, you look at Uber drivers, taxi drivers, truck drivers, there's 5 million of them, just in the United States alone. We're going to see, you know, Florida's voting right now this year. Next year, my wife can turn her car on, potentially, if they agree to it. And next year, she'll have this self-driving car. What happens when all those, who's going to hire a truck driver when I can buy a truck that works 24 hours a day, the truck driver can only work eight, my insurance is better, I get to depreciate it. What happens when 5 million people from just one disruption or 4 million people that we know will be disrupted by farming for some new technologies are coming out? That's 9 million. That's more than we saw disrupted in the world economic challenges. So what do we do? So right now, we've heard, I've heard people talk about universal income opportunities like they do in the Middle East where keep everybody so they're not upset. They get a stipend of a couple thousand dollars a month. What, what needs to be done in this area? Because there doesn't seem to be anyone going to these individuals that are clearly going to be disrupted and saying, here's what you're going to do. And then some people say, well, just pay them. And I say, people need meaning. They need more than money. They need a sense of purpose. They need, otherwise, they riot, they get angry, they do all kinds of things. What's your view of how we deal with this technological shift that's going to disrupt so much of the labor that we have in our world today? Well, I think you've, I think you've said it so well. I'm going to repeat very quickly some of the points that you made, and then I'm going to answer your question. Okay. Because, okay, the invention of technology in a, is different than in the past because yes. it, it, the technologies can surpass all the uniqueness of most people. And as a result, the, what's happening is that those who are making those algorithms yes. to replace people, yes. to make companies more efficient, yes. are having that effect of creating that polarity. And something like 40% of the jobs over the next 20 yeah, years will Oxford. be lost. Yeah. Something like that. It's yeah. happening fast. It's and happening it, in your industry. Even, it's not just blue collar, it's white collar. Every, what? Of course. I mean, like you said, traders are gone. They're being replaced by the quants. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful and terrible thing at the same time. Yes. It's a, because that computer, that's how we make decisions. We yes. have the, all of the algorithms put yes. in there. And it's so fantastic. Better than individual decision making. So we enjoy all the benefits of that. And at the same time, it creates this wealth gap, it creates this more, as you say, opportunity gap is even more important than wealth gap because people need to be made useful. So we're and totally- And they're not retooling, no one's getting and, and we're And we're, and we're uh, agreeing. In my opinion, there are many, many, many things that can be done in, in, uh, in many things. I mean, for example, um, you need to teach um, the, the next generation um, algorithms, how to write algorithms, because it's like reading and writing. Yes. If you're going to be ignorant, you can change education so effectively. You can create, in many different cases, microfinance. I, I, I love yeah. microfinance. I did too. I, I'm, I'm, you know, because it works, and it yeah. works for people down there. There are so many things that can be done in order yes. to deal with the question. That's not the issue. There are many things, clever people in doing it. But you actually have to have cohesiveness. It has to be a national mission yes, to, to do two things simultaneously. That how do you improve the economic, education, and, and so on of that bottom 60%, and how do you do it in a way that it pays for itself? Yes. In other words, don't have a program that you're going to just throw a lot of money and you don't know that you're going to waste. But do it as microfinance works or other things work. And I see lots of those. That has to, I think, be a national initiative in order to do that because it can be powerful. You can do it. Yes. But it's going to require transfers of wealth, some elements of transfers of wealth. And so when I look at it, 
it wouldn't take so much of a, of a, of a change in the wealth for, or, or the taxation in, from one group to another to redistribute it because it's so skewed in that way. Yes. But we have to approach this collectively, yeah. okay? Yes. Because if it's angry, if one group is angry at the other group and, and, and beat, the, beat it out of them, then we're going to have people running away. We're going, you know, people are leaving one state to go to another state yeah. and all of this. How we do this collectively has to do with more how we are with each other yes. than are there solutions. There are solutions. And we went to the moon, right? Yeah. We're yeah. going to Mars now. Yeah. We can do amazing things. But I do believe in initiative in which the goal is to deal with that issue, particularly the bottom 60%, their opportunity, their income, and to do that in ways that are self-funding. In other yes. words, if you borrow it, it pays it back because of the productivity that's going to As happen. opposed to borrowing money for a television set or borrowing money for a college education that maybe doesn't provide a job. Well, a lot know? of programs, here's a, one of the problems. Yeah. A lot of programs are put into place by policymakers who really, in a sense, may not have a clue. Yeah. And they think, I'm going to do this program, and they don't pay off. Yeah. The one thing about uh, business that I also bring to philanthropy that I, I see is can it pay for itself if you can get there? If yeah. Not all good things can pay for themselves. Yeah, I get that. Okay? So there's, there's room for giving people money because yeah. they can't. But there's an enormous ability to have it pay for them. Uh, this week, I'm going to go to um, uh, honor um, uh, Mohammed Yunus, who was the founder of Microfinance. Yes, yes, yes. Okay? Yes. And, and, and he basically is a very clever man, and he finds any of the ways where there's a business activity, a goal that he, he wants to achieve, that it pays for itself. Yes. So there are lots of ways. Education. Yes. Yes. Education can be so much better and so much cheaper in terms of technologies yeah. and certain things. Yeah. So it's these things that if we bring to bear, we need to deal with that. But it's more fundamentally, can we all be in the same room working on the same goal, yes. like going to the moon? And the way you do that in your organization is there's certain principles. So for example, simple one is, I understand it is, if someone has two minutes, they're uninterrupted during those two minutes, which you can't watch on a television discussion between both sides. But also you have to repeat fundamentally what they just said so they know they're heard and so that you actually have to listen so that there's the bridge because what happens today is people just stomp all over each other they don't hear anything they don't they don't perceive anything and what we keep, seem to be forgetting is but it'd be like you know, a couple of years ago with the, the battles happening over guns we all want our children protected this idea that you are evil because you have a different view about how to get that done than me is where the challenge really happens let's shift because we're going to run out of time here what would be, uh, you've given us so much advice, and the book is filled with, again, the book is Principles by Ray Dalio, Life and Business. Um, please go pick it up today. It'll change your life. It'll tell you the history of one of the most successful human beings in the world, one of the 100 most wealthy men, but most importantly, most influential men, and the man who's added so much value to tens of millions of people around the world. What would be your best advice for business owners out there? You've kind of done it, but if we're going to summarize, what would be two or three of the most important principles that you'd share with a business owner and help them to succeed. You know, one of them is, you talk about it's not only what, but who, you know, picking the right people, but what would be something you could give them right now as a trigger saying, if you really want to grow, here are two or three areas that I would put your focus in to expand or generate. Now, I tell people, you got to run two businesses, the business you're in and the business you're becoming, mm -hmm. right? Because you have to anticipate. What would be your advice? Well, again, I, uh, same thing. So much is, we've covered. Well, have your audacious goals. Great. Okay. And prepare. Go, go, um, go at, learn from your mistakes. Yes. Realize that you're not in it alone. 
Yes. Don't be trapped in your own head. Yes. Know how to get the best resources and know how to learn from that thoughtful disagreement. Yes. And you will get there. You will evolve. There is always a best path. You just don't know it. Yet. Right? You don't know it yet. Yeah. Yet. Yes. Okay. You get around bright people that have right. different points of view, you can find it. Don't and and when when you fall and you get banged up, reflect. Yes. Reflect. Calm yourself down, reflect. There's a lesson there, right? It's it's the the same things. Make them your puzzles. Yeah. Right? Yes. They'll give you gems. Yes. The gems are the principles of what you'll do better next time. Yes. Yeah. Where is meditation played? I want to make sure we touch that in because you've been a long-term meditator with TM. Tell us about how that's played a role in, you, in the success of your career and your life. Well, I think it's been one of the most powerful things that's helped me the most because it is, I've been doing it for, I don't know, 44 years or something. Yes. And it has given me an equanimity. You know, before we did this, we just had a brief meditation yes, together. together. <laughs> um, it, it gives, as you know, it gives you both an equanimity that so that you can it seems like being a ninja yeah. everything kind of slows up and they come at you and you can deal with it with that equanimity yeah. and it gives you a creativity because it opens the connection between your subconscious brain and your conscious brain that's where the magic is and that's where the magic is because in your subconscious brain is all those creativity you know it doesn't come from working it in your conscious brain yeah. You know, where do the best ideas come from? You have take a hot shower yeah. and, and they pop into you your head. You go to sleep wanting an answer and wake up with the answer. Right. right. Yeah. So subliminally, it's there, but it's, it's trapped there. And when you open up the way through yes. meditation, because it literally, as you know, it, um, you're not conscious and you're not unconscious. You're in your subconscious. Yeah. Because by repeating that um, mantra, that word, essentially that sound, what happens is it gets you away from all the noise that your brain is constantly going through. Yes. And you focus in first on the sound, and then the sound disappears, yeah. and then there's nothing. And where you are is in that subconscious state. Yeah. And so as a result, that exercise, a very simple exercise, there's nothing religious about it, there's nothing, yeah. anything, it's just a good exercise. Yeah. That exercise giving the equanimity and the creativity is just invaluable. Would you be the same level of success if you hadn't been meditating all these years? Oh, I don't believe I'd be close. Yeah. yeah. I, th I think it helps. It's really provided that perspective and that balance. It, yes. That's I recommend wonderful. it. I say, really, it's, it's probably the best gift I can give anyone. They can take it around with them anywhere they go for the rest of their lives. <laughs> right. Right? And it can bring you joy. There. They can bring you joy for nothing. Yeah. And well, it brings you joy for nothing. And you know there are moments where you say, ah, oh, I need to go meditate. Yeah. What if you didn't have the meditation yeah, then? Yeah. It just brings you out differently. It so it's, I recommend it. Investing just for a moment. Um, we're eight and a half years into this bull market. You've given us an idea where we think we are and it told us what some of the challenges are. When there is a correction, I mean, there's a correction every year. People don't realize on average since, you know, since 1900, we have a correction. I remember last year in January was the worst January in history. Everybody's freaking out. And they all came to you at CNBC and said, you're in Davos and what do we do? And, you know, you, you talk, talk to them about what Calm they can down. do. Calm down. Don't overreact. Tell me how you came up. I don't want to go through it now because at the time it's, it's, yeah, it's in my book so people can read the chapters. But this whole idea of finding out how you can not know where the markets are going to go and yet still win, this idea of the all-weather that you came up with, and you adapted it for me to share. You're unbelievably generous with my readers and with anybody who picked it up. Uh, you know, we call it you know, the all-seasons. It's not quite the same. But it's been right 85% of the time you would have made money in the last 75 years. And, and, and when you lose, the most that's ever lost is 4% on that formula. 
How did you come up with it? What made you pursue that? And what would you say to people that are panicking the market's going to crash any moment and they've been sitting on the sidelines missing one of the greatest bull markets in history? I'm going to give the brief answer and then, which is that diversification properly, yes. properly balancing, means that you could take equally good things and you can reduce the risk. And because that, they're that equally- was your, That was, I just want to clarify, you said that the holy grail of investing you found early on changed your career, and it was how you could reduce your risk but not reduce your returns. How did you right. do that? By knowing how to balance, okay? When you can take equally good things, yes, they're equally good, so your expectation of return is equal, yes. right? But because they're uncorrelated, yes. because they move differently, they balance each other. So one okay? goes down, the other one bounces right. up. Right. And um, I, I would love to get into it, but you know, I'll just repeat, what you did is provide a great service. It's in your book. Yes. So anybody who reads that book has taken the time, and you've put it in a language that everybody can uh, understand in a way that we won't have the time to go through now. Yeah. So it was great for me and great for you and great for those people yes. that we could communicate how they could achieve that balance. It's so important because you have to understand that um, in order to beat somebody, it's the market's a zero sum. Yeah. Adding value, that's right. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and so the consensus is reflected in the price. Yeah. And so you have to be better than that. I put hundreds of millions of dollars each year in trying to play that game well, yeah. and yeah. others do, and it's a difficult game. It's more difficult to compete in the markets and be successful than to compete in the Olympics. Yeah. So be humble about that, it's difficult. Yes. But to achieve that balance so that you understand how you can get that good return without losing a lot of money yeah. is, a, is, is something. You've communicated it well, so I would, rather than be yes, able to we'll cover it, book, yeah. recommend that they uh, look at your book. That but your money is, all your personal Most money of my money is in that. Is in that. That's, That's it's right. truly amazing. And people, you can go on, you can go pick up a book or go to the library or whatever and get the answer because you, you, you walked us through it. We did it in two chapters of the book and it's mind-boggling. I mean, if you could go to Vegas and be right 85% of the time and make close to 10% on average, and when you're wrong, the most you ever lost is 4%, how often would you invest, right? Well, it's the, a different game, yeah. right? Yeah, the risk of ruin yes. is so d diminished. Yes. You know, it depends exactly how you construct that in yes. terms of what your risk and return is. So uh, it's explained there. But you, uh, the risk of ruin, like, you know, any one investment, there will come a time in your lifetime that it's going to be down 50 to 75%. Yeah. And when it's down 50 or 75%, it's down 50%, that means you have to make 100% in order to yeah, get, get back. Even, yeah. So you can't afford those Especially if it's later in life, you don't right? have the time, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So this is really the way to protect themselves. Well, many people get great returns, but then they also slash to the bottom. And, but and one of your is, principles is are, not lose these, money. It's these are good returns, yeah. Yeah, these are great returns, but you're, you're limiting the downside massively. What, um, we're out of time now, so the last piece, is there anything we've covered we have, you haven't been able to share? What's the core message you want people to leave with um, whether they're an entrepreneur or an investor or just somebody who wants to improve their life, what would you say that core message? Well, most, you know, most importantly, um, have their prin principles that deal with reality. Yes. Well, embrace reality and deal with it and have those core principles and get them wherever they can. As you know, what I want to do is I want to get your principles. <laughs> I, I, I listen <laughs> to a lot. But if everybody took the time to write down their principles yes. and to think about each other's principles for how to deal with specific things, not this big yeah. high-level principles, yeah.
But in other words, the specific, um, okay, I have somebody who is cheating in my company. What do I do? Or I have the banker who is doing this thing. What do I do? Or how do I I recruit the best team? I mean, every recipe is here. Well, I've been through those experiences and I wrote down my recipes. They can consider my recipes. They can consider anybody else's recipes. At the end of the day, they must believe them, what is good for them, and they must have principles. Because as you say, if you're not, if you don't have principles, everything looks the same, like you're in a blizzard. When you start to think of something and you say, oh, it's another one of those, like you think of a certain type of species, it's that species, and here is how I deal with that species, and that way of dealing with it works. That is an effective way of operating. So I would like to encourage people to have their own principles that they understand and believe in, wherever they get them. And I spent my whole life basically pulling principles out of people. I wrote Money Master the Game, and I came to you, that's how I met you, was saying, I gotta find the best people in the world. They can't be my ideas. I have my own ideas on the psychological and emotional side. If I don't want the best investors in the world, let's figure out what the principles that are guiding them, and let's teach them to the average American. So that's really what we've done. You've been so generous, Ray. Um, I I consider you a dear friend now. I, I love you personally, and I hope people here not only get to see this unbelievable, you know, historic figure here, but I want them to feel the man and your true passion and caring for people and the commitment that you have to leave a legacy where people can continue to grow and expand beyond the time that you're here. And this book is part of that legacy. You're going to write another one, I understand. Is that true? On economic and investment principles. Yes. And then I'll be done. Yes. Because everything that I have to say can be in here. I don't... It gives you leverage. It's, yeah. it's in there. I don't have anything to add. I'm, yes. I hope my grandkids will read it when they get older. <laughs> I'm sure they will. And, and Tony, I want to say that that's, we share the same type of values, the same type of principles, and that's why, uh, you know, like, you know, back at you, man. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you very pleasure, much. Brother. Thank you so much. God Thank bless you. you. So pick it up. Principles, Life and Work by Ray Dalio. Uh, this week, also check out on YouTube. Uh, the machine, how do you say that? What's the phrase? The how machine? the economic machine works. Works. And then his TED Talk as well. And I'll put those out over the next few days as well. Pass it on to everybody. Go grab this book as quick as you can. It's a great read. It'll give you history. It'll give you principles. It'll change your life. Blessings to everybody. We'll see you soon. For more on Ray Dalio's Principles, Life and Work, visit www.principles.com, where you can watch Ray's TED Talk on how to build a company where the best ideas win, listen to some excerpts from the audiobook, or simply order your own copy of Principles today. The Tony Robbins Podcast is directed and hosted by Tony Robbins and Mary Buckheit. Annie Org is our editorial director and occasional host. The podcast is produced by Carrie Song and Tyler Culbertson. Jamie Carvajal and Adriel De La Torre are our digital editors. Special thanks to Diane Adcock for her creative review. Copyright Robbins Research International.